Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, where we answer tough money questions from our audience, kind of like a financial advice column. Think of this as a different kind of Finance Friday. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Mindy Jensen, and with me as always is my has the all the tough money answers co-host, Scott Trench. Great to be here with my dear Mindy co-host, Mindy Jensen. Scott and I are here to make financial independence less scary, less just for somebody else. To introduce you to every money story because we truly believe financial freedom is attainable for everyone, no matter when or where you're starting. That's right. Whether you want to retire early and travel the world, go on to make big time investments in assets like real estate, start your own business, or think through a variety of tough money problems. We'll help you reach your financial goals and get money out of the way so you can launch yourself towards your dreams. Scott, I love our new segment of the show called Money Moments, where we share a money hack, tip, or trick to help our listeners on their financial journey. Today's money moment is travel during the shoulder season. This is the time between the high season and the low season when tourism is typically at a lull. Points in spring and autumn normally fall under this category. You'll be able to snag deals before the location gets too busy. Do you have a money tip for us? Email moneymoment at biggerpockets.com. Scott, I really like this episode today. We don't have a guest. Instead, you and I are answering listener questions. In this episode, we answer questions regarding giving a friend a loan, financial aid payback, healthcare for early retirees, and how to ask for a raise. Yeah. So if you, you know, we, we'd love your feedback on this and we'd love to uh, get your questions. So if you have a question you want to submit, go to biggerpockets.com slash money question, and you can either type one in or leave an audio question there and we will potentially answer it on one of these shows. So thanks so much for everyone who did ask those questions and look forward to getting the next set. Real estate investing is great, but for some, the tenant phone calls and clogged toilets aren't all that attractive. So how do you invest in real estate without getting your hands dirty? Invest for truly passive income with Pine Financial Group. Pine's mortgage fund offers an 8% preferred return and an attractive profit split with 70% of profits going to the investors. You'll earn passive income by participating in lending to house flippers. And it's secure because senior lien holders, that's you, get paid first. Their rigorous underwriting process and the backing of the physical asset provide additional security in case of borrower default. Plus, by investing with Pine Financial Group, you contribute to the revitalization of communities by redirecting your funds from Wall Street to Main Street, supporting local economies, and generating profits simultaneously. This investment is reserved for accredited investors. But if you are not accredited, Pine Financial has options for you too. Take control of your investments and secure a stable 8% annual return today. Visit pinefinancialgroup.com slash biggerpockets to learn more about the fund. That's pinefinancialgroup.com slash biggerpockets. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. 
Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms of each credit card issuer apply. You wrote in and asked us some of your hardest finance questions. We're keeping you anonymous today. Here's the first one. Dear Mindy and Scott, I was trying to be a good friend, but this person is financially crippling me. My partner and I decided to take a loan out in our name to help a friend. They would pay back the loan over time since they couldn't qualify for one themselves. Payments came for the first few months and then stopped and we had to take over. Long story short, we hit hard times due to loss of employment and are now living in a relative's basement. We are stuck with this loan. We've paid off most of the loan balance, but our credit scores are recovering from all the financial turmoil. We can't get a credit card and are in a tough spot. What should we do? Declare bankruptcy? Write it out? Confront the friend? Sincerely, lost. Scott, I'm going to let you answer this one first because I have a lot of thoughts about this. Yeah. Okay. So let's list out a couple of facts. This was a loan to a friend and it was um, um, communicated as a loan. There are several months of payments that came in from the friend before they stopped. This person then had to assume the loan. They've paid, made payments against it. They've almost paid off the balance, uh, is what they said, but they're recovering from financial turmoil. This so-called friend borrowed money from them, stopped paying them back, and partially as a result of that, they are now living in a basement um, with, rel- with, with, uh, with relatives and are in a really tight spot. This person is no longer your friend. If they were your friend, they would have paid, paid the money back and been on top of this if, if they had any means whatsoever, or they would have been communicating with you in such a way where you would have phrased this question differently. This person, you know, someone doesn't pay me. So if I lend someone money, which I, w- I would not do, we'll talk about this in a second here, um, but which I would not do, and they didn't pay me back, that's a problem right? And will be a, a, a problem in our relationship. But if someone doesn't pay me back and I now have to move my family into a friend's basement partially because of that, this person is out of my life. It's no longer a friendship. Like that's a major problem. They're clearly just not a friend. So what should we do here? First, you shouldn't declare bankruptcy. You said it yourself here, uh, lost that you have paid off most of the loan balance. Keep attacking this problem. Um, if, if you've paid off most of it, that means that there's only a little bit left. We don't know the relative sums here, but that's my conclusion from the way that this is uh, 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 phrased out. I would ride it out and begin attacking the problem. I would assume that your friend, so-called friend, is not going to pay you back, but I'd confront them anyways and maybe even consider legal action because you do have a history of them paying you um, back for parts of that loan, which I think imp- implies a contract. To avoid the situation in the future, one, if you're going to lend to somebody, call it a business relationship. It's a loan. It's not a gift. Um, it's a loan. Have a contract in place and have mechanisms and collateral to collect on that. If you don't want to damage your relationship or want to value relationships, don't lend money to friends and family. Instead, gift money. I think, Mindy, you have some good frameworks on that one, but I'll let you go and take it from here. Yeah, I really think that this particular 
listener is trying to salvage the relationship. And I think you had a really good point, Scott. This friend isn't a friend. A friend doesn't make you chase them down for the loan that you generously took out for them. You're helping them out and they're taking advantage of you. Um, I don't think this is a declare bankruptcy sort of situation, but we don't know how much the loan is for their income, et cetera. I absolutely think you should confront the friend from the standpoint of this isn't a friend anymore. You should confront this person and say, I lent you money when you were in a bind and you have put me in a bind by not giving me the money back on the agreed upon schedule. Now, I'm wondering if they have something in writing saying that they agreed to these payments on this time schedule and everything will be paid back by this and such time. Um, I'm wondering if they could sue this person. This is, I mean, I would certainly look into that, especially depending on the amount of the loan. If it's a $500 loan, it's not worth taking them to court. Uh, maybe like small claims court. If it's $5,000, $50,000, that's definitely worth pursuing. Um, look up your local small claims court limits because in many cases you can just uh, represent yourself. You save on attorney fees. And it's a pretty straightforward thing. I borrowed money for them. They were supposed to pay me back and they didn't. Yeah. And, and I think you got a real case here, depending on, on your location, because they paid you back for the first few months. They paid, they made payments. There's a history there. Like, what are they going to say? No, that was just doing that to, out of the goodness of my heart here. Um, yes. I, I, I think there's going to be a, uh, 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 a, a track record here, depending on what documentation you have. You, may, you should have had a contract in place and a document that's been signed. But I wonder if you'll be able to find enough that implies or explicitly states it in text messages or emails or whatever it is that you use to communicate with this friend. Exactly. I think that we can't really beat them up for not having the contract. But for anybody listening, considering lending money to a friend or family member, uh, my first piece of advice is don't. And my second piece of advice is if you're not going to take my first piece of advice, at least get a contract. One other thing that I think is really interesting they couldn't qualify for a loan themselves. If somebody, a lender who has large pockets and deep pockets and bigger pockets, knows how to vet people, bigger pockets than you, and knows how to vet people for a loan, and it's like that's their job, and they won't give this person a loan. Why are you getting giving this person a loan? I think that's right, and I think I think that uh, you know, Mindy, I have one last question here. You know, if this person is not paying. Uh, lost back here. Do you think that lost should alert that person's friends and family to the situation so that that those other folks don't continue to lend this person who's not paying people back additional money? Or do you think that's a step too far? Ooh, that might be a step too far. Again, depending on what the loan was for. What what could happen, Scott, is that. You borrowed $50,000 from me and stopped paying me back. Then I call up your mom and I'm like, hey, Mrs. Scott uh, or Mrs. Trench. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Mrs. Trench. Scott borrowed $50,000 from me and he didn't pay back. She could say, you know, Scott borrowed $50,000 from me and didn't pay back. And then your sister calls up and says, yeah, he didn't pay me back either. And then all of a sudden, everybody's like, why does Scott have $450,000 of ours and he's not paying anybody back? That could be a bigger issue, too. Yeah. Something to think about. Um, I don't know. I, pro- I probably would agree with you. But a part of me in that situation would 
really want to. So be interesting to see how, how Lost chooses there. Okay, let's move on to the next question here. Dear Scott and Mindy, what is the least bad way? I love that question, the phrasing of that. Um, least bad way to access my house, my home's home equity to pay off my credit card balance. I own a home that is worth $600,000 and only owe $150,000 on it with a 3.4% interest rate. Given today's interest rate, what is the best way to access my home equity to pay this off? Best M. All right, Scott, I would not be looking at home equity. Of, of course, we don't know how much credit card debt there is. I am assuming that it is significant enough that you need to get a line of credit or a home equity loan. I would definitely not refinance your property because you have the 3.4% interest rate. A HELOC, a home equity line of credit, is basically borrowing against that uh, $450,000 that they have sitting there in their equity. Um, you borrow whatever you need. Let's call it $50,000 in credit card debt. You borrow $50,000 from your credit card, or I'm sorry, from your home equity, and you put it towards your credit card. Then you cut up your credit cards because if you can't figure out how to stop spending money, you're going to find yourself in this exact same position with credit card debt and now a $50,000 HELOC loan to pay to. HELOC rates are like 8% right now. And we're recording this in July, 2023. Your mileage may vary. I don't have an exact quote, but that's a high interest rate compared to his mortgage interest rate. It is a low interest rate compared to credit card interest rates. Another way to do this, Scott, that I was thinking of because he's asking about accessing his home equity. Um, I answered that question first, but another way might be to open up another credit card and balance transfer. This works if you have a smaller amount. Um, I don't know that you can get a credit card with a $50,000 limit and then balance transfer all $50,000. But a lot of times credit cards will have an introductory APR of 0% for 18 months, 12 months, something like that. That's a great way to pay down a lot of money without paying interest. Then you can pay the play the balance transfer game, take the remaining balance, transfer to a new card, use that introductory time period to make lots of payments interest free, and then transfer again. Again, it, we don't know what the amount is. If it is more than like $10,000, the HELOC might be the way to go. But then I would aggressively pay down the first, the, the HELOC as soon as possible. Yeah, I, I think those are great suggestions. I think, you know, what is the least bad way to access uh, your home equity to pay off the credit card balance? A home equity line of credit. But there are less bad options than accessing your home equity, as Mindy uh, just, just alluded to, like potentially playing the balance transfer game if you can get an intro rate of 0%, for example, on a new card. Either way, credit card debt is an emergency. It's the number one priority in your financial life um, to, to take care of after you know a very small emergency balance of $1,000 or two um, on, a, on a regular basis. And because HELOC rates are so high and so unattractive right now at that like eight, 9% that Mindy mentioned, you got to attack this problem. So regardless of how you refinance it, whether it's a balance transfer, transfer to a new credit card, whether it's a HELOC, or if you have other assets like a stock market balance, you can borrow against that, for example, perhaps at a three to 4% interest rate might be a little higher. Um, those would be better options. Um, but if you have to do it, take out a HELOC 
Um, if, if those options aren't available, take out a HELOC and attack this thing because eight, nine percent interest debt is is about as good a return as you're going to get guaranteed after tax um, in life. So go after it. What if I told you that I, Mindy Jensen, the queen of budgeting, the personal finance fanatic, sometimes forgot to cancel my subscriptions? I know it's horrible. $10 here, $15 there. My useless subscription bills could have taken my whole family out to dinner multiple times. Rocket Money can make all that subscription sadness suddenly vanish. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. You can see all your subscriptions in one place and cancel money-sucking subscriptions with a tap. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over $500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. That's rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms of each credit card issuer apply. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my 9-to-5 job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Saving for a down payment, a wedding, or just looking for extra money to invest? Monarch Money turns your budgeting woes into wins. That's why the Wall Street Journal named it the best budgeting app overall. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash pockets. Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it easy to manage your money like a pro. Add a partner or family member to your account for no extra cost, so combined finances become a breeze. 
customize your budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions, and more. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash pockets. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash pockets for your extended 30-day free trial. Should we move on to another question here? Yes. Dear Mindy and Scott, I didn't realize this at the time, but my father took out a parent plus loan when I went to college to help me pay for it. Financial aid was really confusing, and I didn't grow up in a financially savvy household. I assumed that all debt was in my name, but it turns out that he's carrying debt from my education. He would like me to help pay it back, but I already have $29,000 worth of debt in my name from school. I know I'm not legally obligated, but is there a right thing to do here? Sincerely, in debt. Okay, I'm going to go first on this one, Scott. Yes, there's a right thing to do. It's your education. And if your father is asking you to help him pay it back, you should help him pay it back. And yes, you have $29,000 worth of student debt in your own name. How much does he have in his name? Of course, we need more information from this question, but... If it's in your name, if it's, if it's for your education, I think you should have a further conversation with your dad. What sort of help does he want paying it back? Does he want you to pay the whole thing back? Does he want you to pay half of it back? Does he want monthly payments? This is a conversation to have with your dad and come up with something. I mean, look at your financial situation. Oh, I have an extra $50,000 every month. You should help your dad pay off this loan. Oh, I'm struggling and I'm barely paycheck to paycheck. That's something you can help explain to your dad. I can't help you right now, but I can help in the future. Or why don't we set up a payment plan in a few years? Um, but I think if ultimately the college debt was for your education, you should do everything you can to help pay him back. I think that's right. And I, I get, I'm speaking from a position of privilege here where my parents paid for my college, um, and paid, paid off, you know, HELOC, I think to, to, to pay for a lot of that. I, uh, that puts me in, in an entitled position here. I think though, that if I was in this person's shoes, yeah, I would, I would have a conversation with my dad and say, Hey, absolutely. Here's my situation. Here's where I'm at. Here's what I can afford. What do we think here is reasonable? Um, and I think that, you know, coming at it from that uh, 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 mindset of I'm going to be very positive and proactive about this and ready to grind to pay off the student loan debt perhaps will result in dad then helping to um, uh, do, do the best, do his, his, the best job he's able to help pay off that, that student loan debt. Um, I think the other option there is really a relationship killer um, or a potential huge, um, you know, huge thing in the relationship. And so this person would need to be ready to cut off um, their parent, uh, uh, in this case, who basically donated to their college education, um, would be the, the other alternative there um, to not approaching this in a healthy, proactive way of attempting to participate in, in paying off some of that debt. Yeah, I'm going to assume that they have at least a cordial relationship and say, this is the conversation you need to have with your dad and see what sort of help he wants and what timeline he wants it in. See if there's a way to come to an amicable solution. Mindy, a, a, a tough question here, but thinking about this, zoom in, you know, 18 years ahead. Uh, if I were in the same situation with my now nine month old daughter, I think that as a parent, 
Um, and again, I get that I'm from a position of privilege here and having a, a strong financial position at the time I'm saying this. But I think that if I was going to take out debt to pay for um, children's college education, that I would probably own that debt as well. So I think that there's like kind of that, I almost have a like mixed ownership perspective here of like dad probably should have owned in this case, some of that, um, or gone into it because you can't lend money to somebody in a family setting. You got to think of it as a gift. We just talked about that earlier. And this person needs to recognize that even though maybe that's what dad maybe could have brought into the situation, they need to also be accountable for the student loan um, balance that dad assumed in this case. So it's kind of like that mutual accountability, if you will, that I think would 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 be really healthy here. And I think if both parties atta uh, uh, attack from that perspective, they're going to have a much healthier rep, uh, relationship. I bet you, though, that both parties will not, uh, or that it might be very difficult um, for both parties to 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 embrace that viewpoint. That's a really hard spot, and it's a couple years of grind. We don't even know how much the balance the father has. We know that there's twenty nine thousand dollars of debt in the, um, for our in debt friend here. Yeah, it's a tough situation all the way around. And you know, if I have this mantra, if you want to know the answer to a question, ask the question. If you want somebody to know something that you're thinking, you have to tell them. Quick, Scott, what am I thinking right now? You have no idea because you can't read my mind. Just like I have no idea. Well, I can read your mind, Scott. You're saying, wow, I'm so privileged to be able to record a podcast with Mindy. She's so awesome. Yep. See, I can read minds. But if I want you to know what I'm say thinking, I have to tell you. So I think the answer to most of these is going to be have a conversation. Okay. Let's go on to the next question here. Dear Mindy and Scott, I was curious about how early retirees address healthcare. Without a W-2 job, healthcare is really expensive in the U.S. How do you plan for taking into account the 4% rule? Do you keep a minimum part-time job to pay for it? I want to get to fire, but I'm scared that I won't have enough. Thanks, R. This is a super fun question, she said ironically. Um, this is actually a very interesting question, which brings up some ethics. So the United States healthcare system is awful. Everybody can agree on that. It's overpriced and the healthcare system pays lobbyists to go to Congress and encourage them to write laws that are in favor of the healthcare system. The regular person is not paying lobbyists to go to Congress to encourage Congress people to look after them, which is kind of their job, but we're not getting into politics here. So we have expensive health care. There is a program in place where if your income is low, you get government provided or government subsidized health care. If your income is low enough, you're on Medicare. If your income is not low enough to qualify for Medicare, but still super, super low, you can get the maximum subsidy from the government so that your healthcare out-of-pocket costs are super low. Um, I have a friend who is getting healthcare on the exchange. He has figured out a way to manipulate his income because he's retired. He is manipulate, and I don't, I don't like the word manipulate. How? What's another word for manipulate, Scott? I, I, I realize he's realizing a certain amount of income. Yes, he is realizing a certain amount of income through some odd jobs, 
which would keep him on Medicare, but he doesn't want to be on Medicare. He doesn't want to take a position of Medicare from somebody who actually needs it. So he does Roth conversions from his 401k to increase his income so that he is not on Medicare, but still getting the maximum subsidies. Some people think that this is unethical. I think it's unethical that they are hiring lobbyists to go uh encourage Congress to pass laws that are not in favor of the American people. But I'll step off my soapbox there. Um, there is So his out-of-pocket monthly cost is approximately $300 a month, qualifying for the maximum subsidies on the exchange while staying off Medicare. And I think that's a pretty good answer. Um, that's something that you're going to have to account for. That is a line item in your budget and should be. You should plan to keep that line item and increase it every year because it's going to increase every year. Um, but that's just another cost. Same with I have a chronic medical condition and I have very expensive uh, insurance, uh, not insurance, medication that I have to buy every single year. It's $11,000. Great. Then that's a line item in your budget that you have to account for. And your fire number will be different than somebody else's fire item, fire budget who is not operating under those same conditions. Just like your fire number is different than my fire number because you have a different lifestyle than I do, Scott. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a fantastic answer, Mindy. And, and, and you know, I'll, I'll just provide another example here to reinforce your point, right? If I have a million dollars in index funds, that might produce a, you know, twenty thousand, maybe sixteen, seventeen thousand dollars in dividend income, right? If I don't sell any in a year, that's my income, right? If I have another million dollars in paid off real estate on top of that, that might generate fifty thousand dollars in cash flow but at no taxable income because the depreciation benefits um, and the other tax the other other tax uh, items there that will offset that cash flow. So that's $67,000 in, ca in, in cash to spend, but $17,000 in taxable income. You're qualified for Medicare. I agree that there's an ethics problem with that, right? Medicare is not designed to, the, the income limits on Medicare are not there to be harnessed by multimillionaire early retirees who could be working jobs, right? Each person will have to think about that for themselves. I love your friend's approach of realizing enough income to help them qualify for an another package there. And you have a spectrum of choices along there. You've got Medicare, right? That's an option, not one that I would take personally because I'd personally have an ethical dilemma with it. You've got the option that your friend chose of realizing enough income uh, on top of that to uh, 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 qualify for other items on the exchange. You've got the option of realizing fat fire and generating hundred plus thousand dollars a year in taxable income, spending it and just spending more on healthcare and factoring that into your FI plan. And last one option that you didn't refer to Mindy, but I think that I'll put on the table is these health share uh, programs. So these are not insurance, but they're kind of alternatives to insurance. They have different rules. They're relatively new. And they're a creative solution in the space, and we've covered them in past episodes of Bigger Pockets Money. 
They're not going to be for everyone. They're not insurance, but they work very well for a, a, a number of folks. And a lot of the people who are in those health sharing programs swear by them. A lot of other people are put off by those programs because they may require you, for example, to abide by Christian values in a Christian health sharing plan or lifestyle choices, certain lifestyle choices that um, may not be as inclusive as some people would would want for other ones, but they are an option out there. And so there are several good um, potential paths here, uh, a potential paths that are less bad than paying the maximum price for a high income earner for health insurance on the exchange. Yep. I agree with that. I believe my friend chose the exchange because he isn't a religious person and doesn't feel comfortable saying that he is in order to get in with that uh, religious organization's health sharing. Um, again, there's some ethical dilemmas and it, it, uh, you have to choose what's going to sit right with you. Yeah. One last thing uh, before we move on here, those health sharing programs, some folks pair something like that with, um, what's it called? Like travel for medic, uh, you know, Oh, medical tourism, medical tourism. That's right. Yeah. You go to Mexico to get the operation done or Europe or whatever. And the healthcare prices are dramatically cheaper. So if you're someone who wants to travel a lot and live abroad for a year or two, uh, your problem, you know, your, the, the healthcare problems may, uh, the healthcare cost problems, uh, may evaporate because of the, the dramatically cheaper, um, options available in other countries. So something to look into. Um, I believe, uh, Christian Bryce from quit like a millionaire talked a little bit about this on an episode, maybe a couple hundred episodes ago. We'll have to dig that one up. Episode 55 and 55 and a half. Wow. That was good. Those, I remember that one. That was a really good episode. That episode was so good. As soon as we were done, we're like, Hey, hey we got to record another show to release the next day because. It was so good. Awesome. So those are some good options there. And then the last one, of course, is you can always just keep working for the healthcare benefits. So if you love your, love your job. All right. Dear Mindy and Scott, I have been with my employer for a number of years and have only received a 2% raise yearly. I am essential to the business, but don't know how to approach them about getting a raise. What advice do you have? Should I leave my job? So I'm going to ask you, Scott, because you are the CEO. I'm going to let you say your answer first, and then I've got several comments I want to share. Yeah. I mean, there's three possibilities here, right? One is that uh, the business is not capable um, of giving this person more of a raise, even though they are essential. The second is that this person is not actually essential. Uh, and the third is that this person has just not played their hand and been um, and, and leveraged their essential position to ask for that raise. So, you know, I, I, you know, I, I am, I just want to have a small amount of healthy skepticism and put a little bit of fear into this person's, um, mindset here. Are they really essential, right? If it's been a number of years and it's only been a 2% raise uh, yearly, they may not be, that may be a, a statement that is incorrect, um, for them. But if they truly believe it, then I think uh, you got to test that and you got to be ready for someone to say no and to be able to, to go out and search and see what your alternatives are, because um, that may, it, you know, that, that that's what it will come down to is either you confront the situation or you let it lie. And if you confront the situation, you need to be, you need to have power in your hands and you don't have power in your hands if you don't know what your market value is uh, and have tested that with, with other interviews uh, and those types of things. If you are 
essential to the business, then you will have or should have a stack of papers, emails, commendations, et cetera, from people that you have been working with saying, thank you so much for doing this. You were such a lifesaver doing that. When we interviewed Erin Lowry most recently on the show, she suggested keeping a praise folder in your inbox on your email. So whenever anybody sends you an email saying, thank you so much for doing this, or you did such a great job here, you just save it to your praise folder. It's hard when it's raise time to remember who sent all of these emails, but it's really easy to open up that folder and print those all out and share it with your boss. Hey, Scott, I'd like a raise. Here is a stack of papers from everybody that I've worked with saying how awesome I am. Scott, as the boss, will look at these and say, wow, she really is essential to the business. I am going to give her a raise. Or you don't have this stack of papers. Hey, Scott, I want a raise. No. What one other kind of CEO perspective here, right, is what does essential to the business mean, right? A good business does not have anyone that is essential to the business, right? Like if I were to get hit by a bus, do you think bigger pockets would stop to cease to function? We'd have a day for you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not essential to the business, right? Um, so I, I think that this, this concept of essential is, is really get, get, can, can give people too big of a head in these situations. Your value is the market value of your skill set relative to the alternatives in, in, the, in a business, right? An accountant, if you're the only accountant at a business, you are essential to the business. The business needs an accounting function. But that doesn't mean that if you're getting paid $60,000, you can at, tell your employer, I'm gonna ha- I need $120,000 a year or I'm leaving here, they're going to say, see you later and hire somebody else for $60,000 to do that essential function, even if you're good at it, right? And so that's just what I think where I would just caution this person, get out of that mindset of I'm essential to the business, reframe it to I'm excellent at my job and my market value is here and I'm only being paid here. And I know that market value is here because I see other jobs posted for this that I'm qualified for. And I've even gone down the path potentially of getting interviews for and getting offers for uh, roles at that position. Now you have that. And then your employer can say one of two things. I agree. Your market value is exactly where that where you just said, uh, where you said, and we should pay you that and we value you. Or they can say, wow, that's awesome that your market value has increased so much. We don't have a position that can pay that amount. Um, at, at this point in time, I'll give you a reference or recommendation letter. Good luck at the, at the new company there, right? That's a much healthier way to approach uh, a position like this and puts the power in your hands instead of, um, saying I'm essential to this business. I want to raise for my boss that puts all the power into your boss's hands and will make you feel resentful if they say no. Another thing is how did you ask for the raise or did you? ask for the raise. You received a 2% raise yearly. Have you asked for an increase? And how are you asking? Hey, Scott, can I have a raise? Is not the right way to ask. Hey, Scott, I'd like to talk to you about my compensation. Here are the reasons why I think I deserve a raise. And here's the amount that I want. It is based on market value. It is based on what I am bringing to the company. It's based on the cuts that I have made or the increases that I have brought in or like whatever it is. But I want a raise is not enough. I want a raise for all of these reasons. 
and here's the amount that I want. You can't just say, I want to raise. But yeah, you should be absolutely looking at other companies to see what they're offering. If you're making $40,000 a year and the going rate for your company's 80, like Scott said, you're probably not going to get that and you should move. Yeah. And again, reframe it to here's the market value for my position and here are the outputs that I've produced. Good luck finding someone else at this capability set at this price range, you wouldn't, you'd find them here. Like that, that's how we got to be thinking about this. Not I'm essential. Yeah. I want a bigger raise that gets you nowhere. Right. I, 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 I would, I would have a very hard time discussing having that conversation with somebody. I'd have a much, uh, 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 we, we, our company would try to be more proactive on the front of understanding where someone is relative to their career journey, what the positions open are and what the uh, opportunities for advancement are. So it sounds like their employer is also not doing a very good job at that fundamental HR, um, task, but also this person is allowing themselves to stagnate at that. So either, um, they need to, 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 to take a stand for themselves with a very clear understanding of market value or jump ship. Yeah, exactly. Scott, this was a super fun episode and I would love for us to do another one just like this. Scott, should we get out of here? Let's do it. Okay. That wraps up this super fun episode of the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. He is Scott Trench and I am Mindy Jensen saying, see you later, alligator. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star review on Spotify or Apple. And if you're looking for even more money content, feel free to visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash biggerpocketsmoney. Bigger Pockets Money was created by Mindy Jensen and Scott Trench. Produced by Kaylin Bennett. Editing by Exodus Media. Copywriting by Nate Weintraub. Lastly, a big thank you to the Bigger Pockets team for making this show possible. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom and the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into real estate investing or take it to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com slash deals. Enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and boom, instantly matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com slash deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com slash deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.